Good morning. If, if this is your first time with us, uh, we've been working through the book of Genesis over the past few weeks. And this morning we'll be in Genesis 6 through 9. As I was, as I was studying this passage this week, I got caught up in the story. Uh, I know many of you, you love a good book. You love a good movie. And a good book or a good movie grabs your attention and you get caught up in that story. Well, the book of Genesis is a narrative that begins at creation and takes us through several thousand years of the birth of a nation, the birth of the Israelite nation with an incredible promise. So what I want us to do this morning, because as, as I said, we're in Genesis 6 through 9, that's, that's four chapters. You're probably thinking, oh my goodness, this is a lot of text that we're about to cover. Well, I want us to get caught up in the story. You see, many of us in here, especially if we grew up in church, and even if you didn't grow up in church, you're familiar with this story. It's the story of the flood. Children know it because it's a, it's a story people love to tell. You know, Noah built an archiarchy, right? These animals went in two by two. Like, we know this story. We know this story. But one of the incredible, just incredible themes that we're going to see today in Genesis 6 through 9 is actually a, a couple of themes that run through the whole Bible. As I was thinking about these themes, as you see, it's salvation through judgment. We're introduced here to two themes, the judgment of God and the salvation of God. These themes... These ideas actually began in Genesis 3. We saw this just a couple weeks ago. In Genesis 3, judgment comes, but in the midst of judgment, there's hope and a promise of salvation. Then as I was just flipping through the scriptures, the Bible ends with this as well. Revelation 19 ends with salvation through judgment. There will be a judgment when Christ returns. Around the great white throne, there'll be judgment, yet there's salvation for those who have repented and believed in Christ Jesus. Salvation through judgment. Genesis 6 through 9, we're going to see that today. I want to pray for us, and then I want you to grab your Bible. Uh, take your phone, hard copy, there's one right in front of you. We'll be on, still on page 4, that's where we were the last two weeks. Uh, we're going to Grab your Bible because we're going we're gonna to be going through a lot of Scripture. We're going to be flipping back and forth through Scripture. I think it will be helpful if you have something in front of you. So let's pray, and then we're going we're gonna to get into Genesis 6 through 9. Our Father, we, we need your Spirit. We always need your Spirit. We need Him to illuminate our minds so that we have a right interpretation of the Scriptures. Lord, there's been... So much distortion of your scriptures in our day, even of, the, of this story, of this passage. Lord, let us come to it illuminated by your spirit. Teach us, oh God, may we delight in your word. May we hide it deep within our hearts that we might not sin against you. For Lord, we want to be found righteous, blameless. We want to be men and women who walk with God. We want to trust you. We want to have faith in your promises. God, would you do that? Even now, over the next few minutes, Father, would you just give us a, a longing 
a longing to see our friends, our neighbors, our community impacted with the gospel. Lord, we want to see lives change. We want to see dead people walk, be raised to life. We want to see the blind see. We want to see enemies of you become reconciled friends of God. So God, would you teach us through your word right now? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Our big idea this morning is through God's judgment of sin, there is the promise of salvation. So salvation through judgment. As we begin, we, we see that the world is not the way it was supposed to be. Even in this short snippet of 6, 1 through 8, we really see a world that looks a lot like ours today. And because of this, because of this, God's judgment is certain. God's judgment is certain because of the world in which we live. We live in a broken world. We saw this in Genesis 3. The fall came, sin entered the world, and immediately people became broken. And They're broken in their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, their relationship with their self, and their relationship with creation. We're a broken people. God's judgment is certain. Let me read Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and then we'll, we'll skip down and we'll read 11 to 13. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, man began to multiply. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Seems as if they're obedient. They're multiplying on the land. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They saw that they were good. This is that same word, good. God saw that it was good. Eve saw that it was good. They saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they, were, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, listen to these words. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land And then he adds to that, man and animals. And creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. And then let's skip down to 11 to 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. See, as, as, this, as this picture is painted of, of God's world, we see that we are wicked. The, the men here, humanity, is wicked. 
this, this sinful heart is passed down from generation to generation. We are wicked. The sons of God and the daughters of men, you see those, those differentiations there? As, as man began to multiply, the sons of God took the daughters of men as their wives. There's, there's two main interpretations of this. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't fallen on one of these yet. I don't, I don't, I don't know. So I, I encourage you to go and read and, and research. But the two main views is that these sons of God, and this is, this is really the, the usage of this word, is angels throughout the Old Testament. The sons of God. Fallen angels have now taken human wives, and again, this is, a, uh, this is a misuse of what God has done in marriage. So regardless of what this is, our interpretation, we know that this is talking about wickedness. This is talking about sin. This is talking about going against God. The other interpretation, main interpretation of this, is that the sons of God are those in the line of Seth. You remember last week as Heath was expositing Genesis 4 and 5, we have the line of Cain. And, uh, line of Cain. and then in chapter 5, we have the line of Seth. So this is another interpretation that the sons of God are after the seed. The, the seed promised in Genesis 3.15. This is after the line of Seth, and they're intermarrying with the line of Cain. Right? They're intermarrying with those which they should not marry. Those who are not followers of God, they're daughters of men. Regardless, regardless, we see the repercussions, we see the consequences. These are fallen angels, or if it's the line of, of Seth, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. As you remember in, in Genesis 5, people were living to 900, almost 1,000 years. And now God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it 120 years. Again, as you, if you were to research this, there's, there's two interpretations of 120 years here. Either it's the lifespan of humanity after the flood, and we'll see that. We'll see that after the flood, Noah lives to be 950, but after that, people start getting, dying younger and younger. Or it could be this, this time that God gives in God's patience towards these people before he brings the flood. 120 years, they have 120 years left before I bring the flood. So it could be God's patience in them maybe responding to God's promises. Regardless, again, we see that God's either limiting their life or he's saying, I'm about to bring punishment upon you. And then we're introduced to the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So we learn a bit, little bit about the Nephilim. They're mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. They were around during this time and afterwards. These are, these are men, the Nephilim. The reason Moses mentions them here is because the people are about to encounter them in the promised land. Remember, Moses is writing this to a people that are about to enter in to a promised land. They're about, to, they're about to have conquest. They're about to take a land for themselves that God's promised. In Numbers 13, 33, if y'all remember this, Moses sent spies into the land. And this is what the, the report says in Numbers 13, 33. The spies come back and they say, no, we can't go in. The Nephilim are there. We're fearful of them. They're huge. 
They're men of renown. They're mighty men. We can't go and conquer this land. Well, what Moses is saying here is, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Be comforted because the Nephilim were before the flood. They're after the flood. And God has taken them out. And God will take them out again. Because he's faithful. He's strong. He's greater. You don't need to fear. Have no fear as you go into this land. Be comforted. Be assured. And then we see, in light of this, we see also that man is wicked and it's great in the earth. Verse 5, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Is there a better definition in all the scriptures of sin and what it does to us? This is total depravity. We are wicked. Our hearts are wicked. There was no hope. There's no hope. We're in need of of heart transplants. Our hearts are stone, according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We're in need of of our hearts to be made of flesh for God to do a work within us. Our hearts are at enmity with God. We also see that that the earth is, is corrupt and filled with violence. It's corrupt instead of very good. God said it's very good in Genesis 1. God said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's desire was for the earth to be filled with worshipers, not violence. Here the earth is filled with violence instead of worshipers. This sets the scene for us as we move into the flood. This is not not God acting on a whim. This is God seeing his creation. And then we see that that he must act in this way. As, As we see these attributes of God here in in. And just the, the, the picture that's painted of God, we, we realize from the rest of scriptures and this, that he is just. We are wicked, but he is just. He's righteous. He cannot be in the presence of sin. That's why he kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden. He cannot be in the presence of sin, and sin deserves punishment. Verse 6, these are, these are words that normally are not attributed to God. And the Lord, this Yahweh, regretted, he regretted that he had made man. And it grieved him to his heart. God is in pain over this. He's anguished. His his heart is broken because his creation is not turned to him in worship. It's turned away from him in rebellion and disobedience. And then he has a plan. And his plan is to blot out. This is his response to sin. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. This is what our sin deserves. This is what their sin deserved. It's death. It's to be blotted out. It's to be destroyed. It's to be wiped out from the earth. The Lord's wrath is stored up for sin. This section, as we saw last week, it began in 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He blessed him and named man when they were created. It started in creation. This, this section beginning in 5, when it started in creation, that was very good. But it's going to end with total destruction. That's what we see. God is going to blot them out. God's judgment comes through a flood. So he is just and he must deal with sin justly. 
God's plan is to bring a flood and to wipe out all creation. Everything he created. I'm going to read a few verses, a few passages from our text today. Just give you a picture of this flood to see his judgment on the wicked. So in in verse 17 of chapter 6, he says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything, everything that is on the earth shall die. Everything shall die. This is bleak. This is bleak. This is a black backdrop, right? Like, what is going on, God? You're about to destroy this creation you just made. This creation you love. This creation that you declared very good over. Look at 7 verse 4. For in seven days... I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. God's going to blot it out. He's going to wipe it out. Verses 10 and 11 in chapter 7. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth And the windows of the heavens were open and and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The flood's coming. The rains are coming from above. The, 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 The deeps are bursting forth, flooding the earth. And then we get the account of the flood. In chapter 7, 17 to 24... Listen to these words. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed. You're going to see that a couple times, right? The waters prevailed. The waters triumphed. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life. Breath of life should move us back to Genesis 2. God breathed life into Adam that he made from the dust. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. You may be thinking, what kind of God could do this? This isn't a loving God. This isn't a God that cares. But it is. Our God is faithful and true to his promises. What this teaches us is that sin, sin has devastated the world. Sin is real. Our earth, our our world, people are impacted by sin. And sin 
is cosmic rebellion against God. That's what it is. And it has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. Judgment has to come upon sin. The breath of life here is extinguished from the face of the earth. The rain comes and comes and comes. Constant water from under and above destroys all of life. There's total destruction in verse 23. You see, this is, this is in complete opposition to what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates and brings life. This is decreation. One, one Old Testament scholar says the narrator's camera lingers longest over the destruction of life by the flood. Why is that? Why would the camera linger over this? He wants us to understand the reality, the consequences of sin. He wants us to see our sin. He wants us to see that sin must be punished. Yet, yet, within this story, and purposely I've skipped around to show the judgment that's come. Within this story there is great hope. Yes, God sees wickedness, sin, and evil. But he also preserves a remnant. He brings salvation to his people. So in the face of judgment, in the face of the flood, there's also glimpses of salvation. Yes, God's judgment is certain, but his salvation is sure. His salvation is sure. God remains faithful. He's faithful. And two elements here really stand out in this passage is that God's salvation is sure because he's faithful to his promises. In Genesis 3.15, remember, there was a seed promise that would crush the snake. So yes, his salvation is sure. We're going to see that through the seed, he brings salvation. But then we're also going to be introduced to another concept in this passage for the first time in Genesis that God's salvation is sure through the covenant. God is going to establish a covenant with his people. So let's, let's go back to chapter 6 now. And I want to I show you how God's salvation is sure in the midst of wickedness where every intention of the heart is evil continually. This is what verse 8 says. See the contrast. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's hope. There's hope. God's grace is poured out on Noah. Noah finds grace. He finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, God, God sees Noah. And there's hope. So that ends, 6, 8 ends, this, this, this second section or, yeah, second section of, of Genesis. And now we're going to be introduced from 6-9 all the way to the end of chapter 9, this new section. And remember, these sections are marked by these are the generations. These are the generations. So now, after we see in 6-8 that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, in verse 9, he says, these are the generations of Noah. They should, light bulb, light bulb should be going off in our brains. All right, God, last, last time we saw this, it was, it was through Seth. Adam to Seth. Now you're telling us that it's 
It's Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Here, we see that Noah is righteous. He's living a life that honors God. He's blameless. He's blameless before God. And he walked with God. Who else walked with God that we've seen so far? Chapter 5, the seventh from the line of Adam, Enoch. He walked with God and then he wasn't. That's what it says. He walked with God and then he wasn't. He was gone. He defeated death by walking with God. Here, Noah is walking with God. And we're going to see that Noah defeats death as well. He defeats the flood. Others that walked with God as, as we progress through Genesis are Abraham, Isaac. Godly men are said to walk with God. This is contrary to those in verses 5 and 6. They walked in wickedness after their own passions with intentions evil. Noah walked with God. Hebrews eleven seven 7 tells us, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We see this later in chapter six, chapter six. starting in verse 13, God, God speaks to Noah and he says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Could you imagine being Noah? What? <laughs> what? What are you saying? Like, okay, uh, all right. What about, what about me? Why are you talking to me? Well, I'm about to destroy everything. <clears throat> and then God says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. All right. I'm going to make a big boat. And this is, this is Noah. He's processing this. Make an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. This is, this is a massive boat. Like, this thing's huge. It, it's, it, I think it's a couple of, like, football fields. So just get, get that in your mind. This thing's big. I think there's a replica up in Ohio, Kentucky. Kentucky, is that where? All right, Kentucky. You been? Anybody been? All right, there we go. Yeah, y'all seen the ark? Well, a replica of the ark, you know? Is it, is it big? Yeah? All right, cool. Yeah, big. <clears throat> it's big. All right, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. And then verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. This is the first time we've seen this word. We'll come back. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. That's eight people in all. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I'm going to continue reading in 7, 1 through 9 as well. 
Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had, Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, <clears throat> and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. You see here, it's pointed out in this passage that Noah obeyed God. Noah obeyed God. Noah obeyed God. Noah obeyed God. He was a righteous man. He was blameless. He walked with God, and God <clears throat> sustained his life. One pastor commenting on this says that eight humans and animals entered the ark while the rest of mankind yawned in the face of God. They yawned in the face of God. Can you imagine Noah is building this ark? Wow, that's a big boat. What are the questions that people are asking? What's going on in folks' mind? It didn't lead to repentance and faith because they were wiped out. They were blotted out. They were yawning in the face of God. God provided. He provided a way of escape, a rescue capsule through the ark. He says, build an ark. And Noah obeys. See, in this passage, God provides salvation for this family through an ark. Get in this boat and I'm going to shut you in. I'm going to shut you in and I'm going to provide for you as the waters raise, as it rains, and as it pours, I'm going to provide for you. You're going to be taken care of. You're going to, you're going to escape my wrath. In God's kindness, in His provision, He has provided a way of escape for us today from his wrath and his judgment. Noah was righteous, yet, as we'll see in just a few more verses, he succumbed to sin. He was not the seed, but we know who the seed is. As the judgment and wrath of God is promised to fall on all sinful humans, we can find escape in the ark. God has provided us escape. Jesus is our shelter in the storm. He comes between us and the outpoured wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus suffered the full wrath of God. He was under the judgment of God. He took the flood of wrath so that we wouldn't have to. He was killed. He died the death that we don't have to die. If you've trusted in Christ as your escape and salvation, amen. But if you haven't, if you haven't this morning, I plead with you to find life in him. Turn, turn from your sin and wickedness and believe in Christ Jesus. Noah believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. He built an ark. He got in it. God shut him in it, and he was saved. Our God is patient with the wicked. He's patient with us, with you. Peter goes on to tell us in 1 Peter 3.20, listen to him, listen, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, maybe 120 years, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, God was patient with these people. He desires for, wicked, for the wicked to repent and believe. He desires that. God is patient. That means we, as believers, have a great responsibility to call the wicked to repent and believe. You see, as the, as the people of that time were seeing this monstrosity of an ark being built, they could have repented of their sins and been saved. That was on the table. They could have, but only eight survived. Today we hold up Jesus to a watching world and call out, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. My, my, my challenge to all of us, my, my question to all of us, are, are we being faithful to this calling? Are we being faithful to call people, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand? Jesus is the way of escape. He's the way to life. Are you doing this? Are we doing this around, around town, at work? Are we doing it to our neighbors, to the nations that have come here? Our desire is to, is to see people saved. God's desire was to save a people. Right here we see it. Our God saved Noah and his family. He saved the animals. He shut them in the ark. He's the divine director behind all of this. He is in charge. <clears throat> the flood continues. And the waters triumph for 150 days. But then in 8 verse 1, in 8 verse 1, we see God remembers Noah. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were there with him in the ark. God remembers Noah. This is the turning point of the story. The flood has been around. The, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. It's been 150 days. And then we get to God remembering Noah. God remembers Noah. Chapter 8 is about the water subsiding. It takes another 150 days. The ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The, the ark now is, is resting. It's a reversal of the flood. There's no longer chaos, but there's rest. This is pointing back to Noah's name. The ark has found relief and rest from 529. And then in, in chapter 8, Noah sends out a raven first. And then he sends out a dove to see if the, if the land is ready to be lived on. He sends out the dove three times and finally the dove doesn't return. God instructs Noah, he says, go, go out. Go out into this new creation. I've recreated a world for you. They were on the ark for over a year. A year on a boat. It's a big boat, a lot of animals. But it's a year. It's crazy. And what does Noah do? Noah immediately in 820 worships, worships God with burnt offerings. 
And then in 821-22, we get a glimpse. In 821-22, we get a glimpse into God's heart. This is what it says. I'm so grateful for the Holy Spirit inspiring these words to Moses. 821 and 22. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God remembers Noah. And then he says, I will sustain life. God blesses Noah and he shows the sanctity of life, both human and animals here in in chapter nine, one through seven. He speaks to Noah. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Y'all get that? They can eat animals now. This is good news for people that like animals. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for life, for the life of man. And then this is why. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Adam 2.0 is who Noah is. Creation 2.0 is right here. God has given them a place to live, food to eat. He's provided yet again for his humanity. Yes, now there will be fear and conflict among animals and humans. I mean, makes sense, right? God is concerned for all of life. Here we see the death penalty for taking a human's, another man's life. It's Lex Talionis, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He, he is taking care of his creation. Again, he tells them to multiply on the earth. So, so this brings us, now we're going, yes, Noah is the one. Noah's the one, he's the seed. Yet, we're going to see at the end of chapter 9, he's not the seed. But then we're also introduced, and we're going we're gonna to speed up. We're introduced through to this new concept. And we're not going to belabor this point because we're going to see it again in, in coming chapters. But we're introduced to this covenant language for the first time. So, so God's salvation is sure through the seed, but also through the covenant that he makes. He said, see, earlier he said, I'm going to establish covenant with you. And then here we see the covenant established. In 9, 8 to 17, God establishes this covenant This is what he says, behold, and this is the Noah and to his sons, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is for 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 every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature That is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So this is the first covenant. This is the first covenant recorded in the scriptures. We, we see covenant language in Genesis 1 to 3. We do see that. And we can talk about that later. But <clears throat> this is the first time the covenant language is used. This is a major theme throughout the Bible. So I think it's, I think it's good for us to pause just for a second and think about the covenant. And think about the elements that are found in the covenant. Uh, one, one Old Testament th- theologian, Gentry, he says, At the heart of covenant, then, is a relationship between parties characterized by faithfulness and loyalty and love. But what we see in the scriptures is that God is the main partner here. God's the one who's acting through covenant. Covenants normally comprise of the following elements. You'll see it terms, parties, promise, sign. In the coming weeks, as we continue through Genesis, we'll see another covenant made with Abraham. And this is a covenant that impacts the nations. There's a covenant with Moses in Exodus. And then we also know the new covenant. When we, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are participating in the new covenant. The covenant in Christ's blood. The covenant here is, is wide. It's so wide. It's all, all creatures. All creation. It's permanent. He says it's for future generations. And it's generous. So generous. God says, I will not wipe you out. Even though, as we saw in God's heart in 8.21 and 22, man is still evil. The terms, <clears throat> the terms are simple. Be fruitful, multiply, take care of life. Be fruitful, multiply, and take care of life, animal and human. The parties are God, Noah, his family, all living creatures. The promise is I'll never again flood the earth. See, the uniqueness of this covenant, and maybe all covenants in, the, in, the new, or in, the, in our Bible, is that this is a covenant in which God binds himself, <clears throat> God obligates himself, and God will maintain the covenant in spite of human failure. This is our God. He's faithful. He's true. And then the sign. The sign is the rainbow. And it's something that all of creation has seen since this time. We see rainbows all the time. It should remind us of God's covenant faithfulness. It reminds him of his covenant faithfulness. He says, when I see my rainbow, I'll remember. I'll remember. And I won't wipe you out again because of your sin. As this covenant is established, sin still is prevalent. People are still evil. Their hearts are still broken. But the Lord promises not to curse the ground. God's faithful. He's faithful to uphold his covenant, even with wickedness running rampant. He remains true. Our passage today concludes really similar to the way it opened with wickedness and sin. It concludes with a scene between Noah and his sons. In the genealogy, we're told that these are the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then Moses has a little subscript there. Ham was the father of Canaan. What? Why do you just make reference to Canaan here? Shem, Ham, Japheth. You don't talk about the other ones, but you do talk about Ham and his son, Canaan. Where are the people about to enter? They're about to go into the land of Canaan, the promised land. They're going to take it over. It's a land flowing milk and honey. He wants to show them, oh, this is what's going on. This is why we can go in and take over this land. 
So in this, we see that Noah plants a garden, a vineyard, very similar to Genesis 2 where God planted a vineyard. But instead of taking the fruit just for food, Noah drinks of the wine and becomes drunk and lays uncovered in his tent. He's naked. He's naked and ashamed. We see Adam and Eve being the same way, naked and ashamed. His son Ham sins against him, and then Noah curses Canaan. You see, Ham goes in, he sees his father's nakedness, and then he goes out and gossips to his brothers. He goes and tells them about it. He doesn't honor his dad here. He's called to honor his parents, yet he sins against his parents. He sins against his dad. See, Shem and Japheth, they go back in. It says twice that they walked backwards with a sheet. They wanted to make sure that they didn't see the nakedness of their father. They wanted to honor him. You see, he, they walk backward and they cover him up. And then when Noah wakes up, he knows what Ham had done. And then he curses Canaan. He curses the son of Ham. He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. You see, Canaan is cursed. He will be a servant all his days. He'll serve his brothers, Shem and Japheth. Shem and Japheth are blessed and told that Canaan will serve them. See, Canaan, the Israelites are about to enter into this land. And here they see, oh, we can. Because they're servants of Shem and Japheth. They're servants of this line. God is sustaining his people. One peculiar interpretation of this that was a flat-out misinterpretation of this passage. And this is very applicable to our country and its history, is that the, the, the word ham means dark or black, okay? Our, really in the, I mean, the early start, start of, our, of our country, even in <clears throat> Baptist circles, we interpreted this to mean black people shall serve all the days of their lives, you see, this was justification for slavery in our country. The reason I point this out, there's several reasons. One, that's a gross misinterpretation of the scripture. It's a, it's a tragedy, a travesty that we would do that. Because that's not what it means. And that's clear. We had an agenda and we were trying to find a proof text for it. The reason I point this out in our day, is that we want to be true to the Word of God. We want to read it in context. We don't want to rip it out to make it our own agenda, to make it say what we want it to say. We want to say what the Word of God says. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be servant, be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. And he died. You see, sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. As our band comes back up and leads us through our final song, 
we, we have a question mark as we, as we finish chapter 9. We have a question mark that has to be answered. Who is the seed? God, who is the promised seed? See, sin had just been wiped out across the face of the earth, but now sin enters back into the picture. So something greater has to come in order for sin to be dealt with. Y'all know sin still abounds in our day. Everywhere, sin abounds. Jesus comments on this passage in Matthew 24. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see, judgment is still coming. But there's salvation available. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, there will be great judgment. But the cross has made us a way to be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is our only hope today. Salvation through judgment. Jesus has taken our punishment. He's taken our judgment. And now we can be recipients of salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you praise for this day. God, may we delight in the salvation we've received in Christ Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.